another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough... Or even if they don't dictate it a bit differently today, I'm at home. I'm using Audacity. You guys get that wonderful audio quality out of today's show. But you do not get a wonderful audio quality out of my voice because I am home and I'm doing this at home today simply because I have the crud, whatever the crud may be. Could be swine flu, could be just some garden variety problem. I don't know, but I don't want to spread it to everybody at work. And since I'm feeling worse, uh, I figured I would stay home. So I'm going to do a listener call-in show today. Uh, so not only do you get me with better audio quality out of the office instead of in the car yelling at ass clown drivers, you get to hear from the audience as well, which is going to be kind of cool. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Number one, make sure you are taking care of our sponsors by giving them business where and wherever you can. A sponsor of the day, number one today, Directive 21, uh, reseller of Berkey Light water filters folks one thing you got to have is water uh they'll help you turn bad water into good water let's just put it that way and uh, they'll help you out uh with making your selection before the sale if you contact them it's good to be able to talk to people that are right here in america that can help you and they will do that for you next is soe tactical gear john willis and his organization these guys have been supporting the show since day one they build the absolute best quality tactical equipment in the world uh i won't hesitate for a minute to to say that their gear is absolutely bulletproof what their competitors use against them is that they overbuild their equipment that tells you everything you need to know next make sure you're getting involved with our forum our forum is growing like lightning let's just take a look real quick here and see what i mean by that i'm looking right now we have 3,649 members of our forum our forum is just a little bit over a year old there have been 107,000 posts made. Most of them are very advantageous to you and can help you learn. Get involved with our forum. Even if you post infrequently, it won't matter. You will learn a lot just by reading it. There's a college education on preparedness, self-sufficiency, homesteading, uh, permaculture, you name it, waiting for you on our forum absolutely for free. Please be involved with it. Uh, last but not least, if you think this show is worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, including over $80 worth of free retail value on day one. Um, information on how to join the Member Support Brigade can be found at the survivalpodcast.com. If you look over in the right-hand margin where all my sponsors are, you'll see a banner for Member Support Brigade, or you can go to survivalpodcast.net forward slash members. Uh, that's how you'll find it, one way or the other. And with that, let's go ahead and rock on into the show. Let's go ahead and take our first caller. Now, I want to let you know before I start doing this, folks, some of these calls are very, very new. Some of these calls are very, very old. I have a huge backlog of calls, uh, but I'm going to be in the office a lot more in the next couple months, so I'll be working through that backlog. And that means if you want to call in a question, please do so, and maybe you'll hear yourself on the air. Let's go ahead with that first question. Hi, Jack. My name is Frank Marvin. I've uh, started listening to your show. My uh, 21-year-old daughter turned me on to it from college. I listened to your economic show today. Very interesting. Um, one one uh, thing I wanted you to maybe, if you could comment or give me your opinion on over the air, might be of value to your listeners. Um, to preserve preserve what you have right now, I just read about this, and uh, it's way, an annuity works. 
let's say you have $100,000 in the bank right now and you're worried about that $100,000. Let's say if you want in five years you use a, a, a future value calculator, you want to have that $100,000 in five years guaranteed, you find a CD for five years that's currently paying about 3, 000, uh, 3%. So you need to put 86000 for example, into that CD. The other $14,000, roughly, you take and you put into a very aggressive or a mutual fund that you're comfortable with. At the end of five years, you'll get your $100,000 back. The $14,000, if it grew to something, that's that's additional. You might have 120, 125,000. Who knows? Uh, just a comment on that. It, it's, it's sort of an interesting concept, but uh, what I gather is that's the way. Well, that's an interesting way to look at things. Let's let's examine that, that approach and Bye. say, is it really any different than simply keeping cash in reserve? And, and to me, it's not. What it what it does do is it allows you to project a given level of success or failure. In other words, you know that the worst you could possibly do is to actually end up with more than you started with unless a mutual fund goes to zero and broke. We have a complete total meltdown of the stock market uh, because even if you're, you know, in your scenario, I think it was you're basically throwing 14000 if I remember your numbers right there, uh, into the uh, stock market, so to say, or the aggressive fund or what have you. Let's say it lost half its value over three years. The, the worst you're going to do is you're going to end up with $107,000 uh, at the end of three years, which means you've gotten a 7% gain on your money. Take that over three years. Where are you at? You're down in the neighborhood of around 2%. Uh, so it's it, it's not a striking return if you lose, but then again, all you've lost was the opportunity for gain because that 86 could have been leveraged smartly and a little bit stronger than in CDs. Um, I think this is a good approach. But it's really just more about how you think about your allocation. It's really no different than any other method of figuring out your allocation, except you're basing it on, I don't want to lose. So that's a good thing. I think one of the things that you could do with it, though, is you could look at secure bonds, bonds that you know are going to pay in the neighborhood of 4% that are secure, that are not going to be loss leaders. In other words, don't buy a bond in the state of California uh, and don't buy like these you know, corporate junk bonds or what have you, but you know, backed insured bonds with a, a, an interest rate at around 4% are still doable. Uh, so if you took the money and said, if I had a 4% gain, how much can I allocate for aggressive investments? You might be able to allocate a bigger portion and still ensure your baseline. So all you're doing, and you're exactly right, this is how people that do annuities or that do any type of financial investment vehicle that guarantees you the principal uh, back at a minimum, but allows you upside market uh, potential, that's exactly what they do is they, one way or another, ensure the base value. They say, okay, we'll take this money and we'll stick it over here. And we know that in a three-year period of time, based on a guaranteed rate of return, it comes back to par. So that's how they do it. You're exactly right. I don't know how valuable it is to the individual investor as an individual technique. But if you start to think this way and you start to analyze this way, it will lead you into additional opportunities. And maybe you'll be able to do it with a more robust portfolio. In other words, if I had $100,000, I wouldn't really be comfortable leaving 80 of it in cash and 20 of it in the stock market. I would want more diversification across the board. But 
if I think like you're suggesting, I may be able to find some other avenues. I may be able to bring some precious metals into the mix. I may be able to allocate some portion of it to purchase a long-term asset uh, where I'm not guaranteeing myself back the principal, but I'm guaranteeing maybe myself the production off the asset. Maybe I'm using part of that money to purchase land for cash that's going to be able to produce something back to me uh, or something along those lines. So I like the approach. I like the thought process. But I think each individual now will need to take this concept and look at it deeper based on your individual goals, how long you have left in your investment cycles, how comfortable you are with risk, where you're willing to make your risk, where you're not willing to make your risk, how much of your your wealth you want to absolutely protect and insure with a guaranteed insurance policy. And then the other thing we have to think about here, this, this investment sounds great on paper, right? You might end up with $150,000 if, uh, if your mutual fund you know, doubles and then maybe uh, does a little bit better than that on a, a boom period. And the worst you'll do is get your hundred grand back or a, you know a hundred and a couple bucks, you know, I mean, a hundred and two thousand. You're going to probably make some gain somewhere along the way. That, however, assumes that the dollar itself remains stable and viable. If we go into you know double-digit inflationary figures over the next three years, which I not you know I'm not dead set is going to happen, but I think could happen, and we have an inflation rate of ten percent a year for three years, and that's a thirty percent inflation rate, and you haven't insured that investment with an underlying commodity like gold, which I won't get into now because we're going to have questions about that in a second. Um, then you've not gained if you're at 110, 10% over three years. You've lost 20 because you're 110,000 by significantly less than the 100,000 bought that you initially put in there. So inflation is a reason that we're forced into a lot of investment decisions in the first place. If it wasn't for inflation, keeping money in a bank account with a 2% interest rate would be a great deal. It would work out for you. You could retire by just throwing all your money into a 2% uh, bank account. What kills that for people is the false money that we operate with, this, this fiat currency. And because of this fiat currency and the inflation against it, we're forced to invest. If we don't invest to beat inflation, it's like you said that $100,000 and said the safest place for it is a great big safe in my house. Well, if your inflation rate's 10% a year, it's exactly the same as somebody breaks in your house, goes in your safe, and takes $10,000 out and locks it back up for you. And then next year, if we have another 10% inflation rate, they come and take $9,000 out, and now you're down to 91000 91, or I mean 80, uh, 81000 So next year they come and they take 8100 out, and now you're down to like seventy one and change. It's just like that. It's just like your money's you know, being devalued that way. That's what happens, and that's why we have to invest. So it's important to use tools like you've discovered here and expand upon them and think about how I can use them as a piece, not all of my investment strategy and my long-term planning. Hey, Jack, this is Gutter Dog 2, two from the forums. Um, this is actually question number two. Uh, I'd like it if you talk about um, creating home businesses or creating your own uh, business. 
Uh, I live up in Michigan, and, you know, we almost have a 20% unemployment rate here in my local town. And, uh, you know, I have a hard time. I've been in the same career for, like, 15 years, and the skills elsewhere have kind of gone on the decline. And I'm having a hard time creating a new uh, job, creating any good ideas. Maybe you could talk about how to come across some ideas. All right, thanks. Bye. Well, this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Um, TSP is a home-based business. Survival Podcast is started out as a, is, it's just something that I wanted to do to help people, and it turned into a business with some cash flow. And um, I think there's a lesson there, and that is to do what you love. And I've been teaching people how to, how to operate businesses uh, for about a decade now. I've spent time being a mentor to people. And in that time, what I have discovered is I am the last person to take my own advice. From the very beginning, I told people, do what you love, and I went into what I knew versus what I love. In other words, I went into technology, I went into marketing, I went into sales, and I went into a world that had those three wrapped up together around it. And I've consulted with business people that are starting a little home business, and I've consulted with business people that are running multi-million dollar concerns, uh, and I'm a partner in several businesses that are multi-million dollar concerns, uh, and I'm actually trying to walk away from those now. I'm trying to extract myself from those, um, get whatever I can out of my piece, uh, or at least reduce my responsibility by reducing my stake, and uh, do this because this is what I love. So if you're going to start a business and you're going to do something to make money from home, why would you then create another job for yourself? Why wouldn't you create a, pay, a place where you can you know, work your passion in such a way that it benefits people in a way that they're going to come back and they're going to help you. There's some cautions I have for you. Uh, number one, I'm going to recommend that you definitely involve the Internet in anything you do. The Internet is the little guy's equalizer. I can go out and I can compete with major media networks online with this show because the Internet is an equalizer, because the people have a true democratic choice. Online, there's billions of options and millions of ways to search for them and find them. And once you find what you want, you can continually go back to it. On your TV set, even if you have the big channel, you know, the big channel package from Dish or Direct or Cable, you have a couple hundred channels at maximum. And then you have fixed time slots. And if something's not in there, well, you don't see it. And, if, and not just content, but advertising works the same way. So you're going to need to involve the, inter- <clears throat> need to involve the Internet. Uh, there's my first caution. Stay away from all these fast money gimmicks. You know, you'll make $7,000 by the end of the week. What if I guarantee your sex, success? Hi, I'm Paul, and I'm one of those Internet guys. All that stuff is bullshit. All that stuff is repackaged bullshit. It's not that none of the stuff inside it works, but none of it works for the person uh, who doesn't have foundational knowledge, how to build websites, how to write sales copy, what a good marketing process, things like that are. So you have to kind of educate yourself to that first, and then maybe some of those products can help you take it to another level, but most of them won't even do that. Most of them are complete crap. Um, I'll give you a little inside thing. I am putting together something that's going to be designed. Hold on, folks. i got to get rid of the new dog. Okay, Max saw a squirrel, and he was upset, so I had to put him out. But um, what I was trying to say there is that you do need to learn how to put a process together. You need a website. And I see a lot of websites that, that honestly suck, folks. Websites need to have a mission. Um, if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and you just end up there, 
then you just get podcast excuse me podcasts to look at. But what I want you to do if you're interested in this, if you're curious about this, go to the survivalpodcast.com today. And in the uh, center column, you'll see a line that says e-notification list, a link about halfway down in the pages links. Click on that e-notification list link. And if you look at that, you'll see that there's actually what you call a landing page there that incentivizes people to sign up to be notified about new show updates. This is a big part of what's made the uh, site successful beyond people sharing it. That anytime I do Google advertising or stumble upon advertising or anything like that, I don't send people to the survivalpodcast.com. I send them to that e-notification list. It's got a video of me. That brings in some credibility and some personal recognition. It tells them what the show's about, and it tells them it's free, and it says, come on, tell me. And it also asks them how they found me. So go look at that. And, and that is because I don't sell anything up front. You know, if people want to support the show, fine. That's the monetization on the back end of it. But up front, I still want them into the process. I want them into the system. And if they, they opt in there, if they give me their name and their email, they go to a page that says, here's our top five favorite episodes by fans of all time. Here's our forum. Here's the member support. Brigade. It tells them what else is there. That process is sadly lacking. So most people need to put that into their websites. Um, next, I'm going to tell you, though, going back to the beginning, do something you care about and you love. I have people come to me and pitch me ideas all the time. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I'm like, great, you know what? Put together the content. Bring me the product, the content, all of it's packaged and ready to go. And if you want me to help you put a web process around it, I can do that. But I can't help you develop the content because I don't give a damn about your subject. And I've learned at this point in my life, if I don't care about something, I don't touch it. I have a limited amount of time, and if you're starting a home-based business, you really have a limited amount of time. You have to maximize every bit of time that you spend away from your family, that you're not in, you know, working at your job. You have to figure out how to use all of it most efficiently, and you can't spend time doing stuff you hate. The next one is stay the hell away from network marketing products. I, I, you know, I used to actually be involved with network marketing at one time in my life. I found one decent company. They're, they're out of business today uh, that didn't charge people a fee, sold a product that everybody actually used, and I made 90% of my money uh, by selling product online or so- selling service online is a more accurate way to put that. Um, I, recruiting was minimal. Network marketing is not a scam in of itself, but the way it's pitched to people makes it a scam. You're not going to get rich by finding two who find two. Do something you own. Own your own brand. Live it. Love it. Make it something special. Um, and I would tell you to at least have some portion of your deliverable be in electronic format. If you sell an ebook, uh, an audio file, uh, even a video, if it's online and downloadable, your profit margin is a million percent once you pay back the creation fee. Nothing else has that kind of a profit margin in it because you don't have production costs, you don't have shipping to deliver. All these things make it more viable. Now, let's say what you love is to carve wood. And you make really cool wood carvings. Well, I'm not saying not to do that then. If that's your passion, let it come first. But then maybe you incorporate some type of electronic thing into that. Maybe you give away the secrets of how you create your carvings. And an ebook that you sell for $9. Or give away as a lead generation tool. It doesn't matter. Trust me, 99% of the people that, that look at your secret method for creating these carvings are not going to be able to replicate what you do. They're still going to be your customers. So you're not, you know, that's the other thing. Quit worrying that somebody's going to steal my idea. That is the dumbest damn thing. I've worked with individual entrepreneurs on, on a lot of projects we've done. And I don't want to give away too much. You've got to give away everything. You gotta tell people everything about how you do what you do. You don't hide anything from your customers. 
You have to give a shit about your customers. People say, I listen to my customers. Listening to your customers is bullshit. If you care about them, you'll tell them everything that they need to know to be able to do business with you on a handshake. So that's the best advice I can give you. It's seven minutes long, and it's just one answer to one question in an eight-question show, so I have to cut it there. Maybe I'll do a whole show on it. I've done that in the past, and I'll see if I can find that show and put a link to it in today's show notes for you for some more advice on setting up home businesses. But great question. Hi, Jack. This is Cav Sargent on the forums, and I have a question about buying silver and its value during a uh, crap-hit-the-fan scenario. I've already started to buy Silver Eagles, and my concern is uh, if the crap does hit the fan and I can't go to a coin store to cash them in, um, what is the value of the silver and uh, where would that barter value come into play? Thanks. Keep up the good work. Appreciate the show, and I've learned so much. I'll continue to listen, and thanks for a great show, Jack. Well, this is a great question because it uh, is actually going to have me answer two questions, this one and one that came to me by email today, which I'll put on the back end of it. The problem with the question is asked is it presupposes that the minute there's a breakdown, I'm going to take my silver stack of silver eagles, and I'm going to run out and start bartering with my neighbors, with silver eagles at a time when electronics might be down no one could take a check a spot price people are still thinking in dollars and currency and it presupposes that the only thing that i'm going to have available for barter in that breakdown is going to be silver eagles which is absolutely not what i recommend i tell you you need to have silver as part of your long-term plan for investing and part of a short-term plan to ensure against economic collapse of the dollar not individual disaster, regional disaster, Hurricane Katrina type things, but a complete massive breakdown of the United States economy. So the Silver Eagle is more for, and so are the silver uh, 1964 earlier U.S. silver coins, are for the long-term duration disaster. When we've gotten to a point where we've gone through the acute stage one of the disaster, society is trying to put itself back together one way or another, but people look at a $10 bill and go, hell no, I'm not taking that. I can't, I can't wipe my butt with that. That's not worth anything anymore. The, the, the currency has collapsed. That's where silver and gold would come in as barter implements. Initially, what you need is cash. That's why I'm telling you at all times, you should have at least, unless you just can't afford to have this, $1,000 in cash available to you uh, at home, kept in a safe firebox. It should be there. Cash, and it should be in small bills, 20s. And it wouldn't hurt to have... $800 in 20s and $200 in a mix of 10s and 5s. People may not be making a lot of change in these scenarios. Cash is what people will take in the early stages. Silver is what people will take for barter in the later stages. Now, let me transition and continue to answer this question by bringing in another point and another question. Guy sent me an email today. He says, you seem to be way in sync with Dave Ramsey on debt. But Dave Ramsey hates, and for those who don't, Dave Ramsey's a very popular talk show host, does uh, syndicated radio. It's on like a 1,000 stations. Uh, big proponent of paying off, living a debt-free life. That's his main marketing spin. Completely agree with him on debt. I completely disagree with him on his investment strategies. Uh, Dave Ramsey believes you buy mutual funds and hold them, and that's all you do. You just buy good quality mutual funds and don't worry about it. And if you bought your mutual funds 10 years ago, I want to know how that's working out for you right now. If you bought them 15 years ago, I want to know how you feel about it right now. 
If you bought them five years ago, I want to know how you feel about that advice right now. Five, ten, fifteen years, right now people are pissed if they followed that advice. You bought gold five years ago, you made money. You bought gold ten years ago, you made money. You bought gold 15 years ago, you made money. If you bought gold 20 years ago, you made money. You bought gold 30 years ago, you made money. Now, the stock market, if you bought stocks 20 years ago, you've made money. 30 years ago, you've made money. But if you bought them 15 years ago, you've made a little bit of money. If you bought it 10 years ago, you're pretty much break-even right now. If you bought them 5 years ago, you lost your ass. And that's reality, and anybody can look up the stats. So from a pure investment standpoint... Gold stands up. And when Dave Ramsey said gold's a terrible investment, it's a terrible... This guy said he makes a pretty good case for it. He doesn't make a pretty good case for it. He, Dave Ramsey makes zero case for why gold is a bad investment. So we're talking about the investment side. I'm going to come back to the barter side here in a second. He makes no case whatsoever. He never says, well, in 1990, if you bought... $10,000 worth of gold, here's what it was worth today. And if you bought an index-tied Dow Jones fund for $10,000 in 1990, here's what it's worth today. If he did that, he actually could show you that if you bought index-tied uh, funds in 1990, you did make more money than gold. That gold has been a better investment between 1990 and 2009. But he doesn't do that. Now, either does that because he doesn't care, he doesn't know, or he understands the Pandora's box when I say, great. What if I bought it in 1999? And then you start to see the genius that is adding precious metals as a component, not all of your investment strategy. That between 1999 and right now, you are dead even on stock funds. You've gone 10 years and you've made no money. Going back to my first question of the day, that means you've lost. That means if inflation was 2% a year, you've lost 2% a year. That means that if you took your $100,000 in 1999 and put it in a safe in your house or you had it risked in the stock market, you ended up in the same place and you've lost. Gold, you made money on if you bought it in 1999. You made a lot of money on it. You've tripled your money from 1999 to 2009. And it's a little bit more than tripled. Now, does that mean you'll always win with gold? No. That's why you balance things. That's why anybody that ever says put all your money into one vehicle, I think is an idiot. Even Dave Rams. Even though I have tremendous respect for 90% of his advice, when it comes to his investing advice, here's the big rub with this. Dave Ramsey's a multimillionaire, folks. He's not you. Just like Susan Orman is a multimillionaire, she's not you. Just like, what's that jackass? Jim Cramer is a multimillionaire, he's not you. If they take... $2 million and throw it into stock funds, and it goes up and down on a daily basis, they don't give a rat's ass. They've got all kinds of annuities, and trust me, every damn one of them owns gold. But Dave Ramsey is beholden to the networks, and Dave Ramsey can't go out and say, dump your stocks, because if Dave Ramsey does that, his show will be over tomorrow. Dave Ramsey's no fool. He knew this market crash was coming. He just denied it. He denied it because he had to. He had no choice. I'm not beholden to anybody but you, so I'll tell you what I think when I think something, when I'm pretty sure. I'll let you know. I feel this is coming. Coming back to barter, though, on this. Long term, gold and silver have been worth something forever. There has never been a time in the organized history of mankind where you couldn't take a bar of silver or a bar of gold and exchange it for goods and or local currency. And this is really the thing. The guy that sent me the email said, Dave Ramsey said, if you look at New Orleans, having gasoline 
or food was better barter than having gold and silver? Yes, because the whole catastrophe portion lasted about 30 days. See, no one's learned the lesson of Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Rita or Hurricane Ike or any of these hurricanes. Nobody's learned this. Nobody understands this. Nobody has a clue what we really should have learned. And I told you what we should have learned way back at the beginning of this show. You can go back and listen to that episode, crappy audio and all. But what we should have done is we should have looked at those scenarios and said, this is how bad it gets when a relatively small portion of the country is in complete disarray and the rest of the country is there to rally around them and fix it. Because that's what happened. It, people made mistakes. People screwed up. People failed to take responsibility on both sides, both the government side and the people that were stupid and didn't leave when they were told to. Everybody gets blamed for that. But the reality is that Americans came together and helped out. There were relief efforts. There's still people that are living for free today that lost their home during Hurricane Katrina. I think it's absolutely nonsensical. Those people should be on their own by now. There's people, you know, they were on welfare then, they're on welfare now. Whatever. But the point is that there was a safe place for rescuers and for support to come from. If we have a national level breakdown where it's not an island surrounded by support and there's no place for help, what do you think it's going to look like 30 days later? What do you think the value of a dollar is going to be 30 days later? It's going to be meaningless. Silver and gold are for those times for two things. One, you can use it for barter in the economy at that point. I promise you people will be doing it. Because it's always happened. That's always the way it's been. Yeah, people will trade for food. People will trade for, for other items. But we have currency because I don't always have what you need. I have bullets. I'll trade you bullets. I don't want those bullets. You have forty-four caliber bullets. I have a thirty-eight special pistol. Your bullets are worthless to me. Now, in that economy, we might be at a point where we're saying, hey, you know what? Here's what we'll do. I'll take those because I know I can trade them to somebody else, but I might not. What I need is to have something that if you trade me for my item, I'm willing to give up. I know that anybody I come across is likely to be willing to take that at some sort of a fixed value. Gold and silver fill that. The real value, though, of gold and silver is they are portable, small quantities worth a a lot of money, so to speak, and they can be taken with you and converted to local currency anywhere in the world. There's nothing that allows you to be as private with your wealth and have the exchangeability. And remember, folks, I'm still saying between 5 and 15% of your investment. Not 100%. Not 1,000%. Right? Not 50%. Not 60%. 5%. That means if you have a total uh, liquid net worth in cash, stocks, bonds, retirement funds, everything, of $200,000, we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of ten to $20,000 in precious metals. It's a very, a very small portion of the whole. And it allows you to have access to that and divisible access. That's the last part, and I need to move on. I know this is a long answer, but this is a huge question. If I own a mutual fund, then it's complex how I extract a portion of it, how many shares I sell, and there might be penalties if I sell it too short, I haven't held it long enough. But if I have gold and silver bars in a firebox in my house, I can go somewhere and exchange them for currency. And I can control exactly how much I exchange. And I can only take what I need as I need it. I don't have to pay a bunch of brokerage fees. And as long as it's under a $10,000 transaction, it's private. 
Nothing else offers that. That's why it's an essential part of your planning and your portfolio. And that's why people like Dave Ramsey do their audiences a tremendous disservice. When they make a statement, gold is a terrible investment, and they don't back it up with any facts or figures. They just say it over and over and over and over again. That's what politicians do. And I expect more from a guy that I have that much respect for. Next question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Chris from New Orleans. I... um tried out one of your sponsors, Tea Party Silver, and I'm really impressed with uh, the product that they provide. I ordered uh, half a dozen of those. I'm going to give them out as Christmas gifts. So uh, it's just a quality product and recommend it to the rest of your listeners. My question is, uh, when you're leaving your house, say, to evacuate for a hurricane, uh, what are the uh, things you should do besides uh, cleaning out your fridge and maybe turning off the power um, what are some of the things that one should do in that situation? Thank you. That's really a very difficult question to ask, and I'm going to have to condense my answer so the show doesn't get too long. Um, but it's a perfect example of why I always say that your plan has to be your plan, not my plan. You know where you live. You know what your threats are. You mentioned one, so I'll talk about some things specific to hurricanes. But a hurricane may not be the threat you're evacuating for. Um, you have to think about things like the duration of the time that you expect to be gone. Are you going for good? Are you going for a long-term thing? I mean, if it was a flu pandemic and I was going to a prepared bug-out location, that I had a mailing address that, uh, I would probably, uh, in fact, we keep them around, the change of address cards. I would just toss one in the uh, mailbox, and uh, I'd have my mail forwarded. I know that doesn't sound like typical disaster planning, but it is. You mentioned a hurricane. Here's two things about hurricanes that uh, I would suggest you consider. One would be, ideally, you would board up your windows so that if there was any kind of breakage, uh, it would keep the, wind, the glass on the outside and hopefully keep people and weather out. You may not have time to do that. You don't have time to board, board up your windows. Kind of a, uh, a half-assed but useful step would be to get duct tape and put a big X on the inside of every window pane from corner to corner. What this will do is if the window is just fractured but not totally blown out, it will often actually cause the glass to stay in place to a degree. Or even if the window is blown out, it, the glass will come down in big sheets rather than shatter. Uh, which makes cleanup easier, assuming there's anything left to clean up. The other thing is, if you have a two-story home, obviously take all your valuables, all the things that you'd like to keep as dry as possible, move them to upper floors. Get everything off the floor that you possibly can, and hopefully you'll be able to deal with the flooding situation that's likely to occur a lot better. But those are just some random thoughts. Cleaning out the refrigerator, obviously you you have time is a good idea. Shutting off the power, shut off your gas, shut off your water. I mean, I don't think people realize how much that can save you in a hurricane. You start having, you know, water systems backed up and, and pipes blown in and what have you. It may be a huge thing that you've shut that off. Um, you're, you know, one big danger is the sewer backing up. There's really not much that I know of any way you can do about that. But this is why I suggest you occasionally run drills. Go away for a weekend on vacation, but treat it as though you were going away for a disaster. And, and, you know, maybe you don't shut the power off when you do this because you don't want your food to go bad in the refrigerator. Maybe you simulate that portion. What would we do? And you at least know what you would do with the food. But then everything else, and when you come back to your house, go, what do we wish we would have done? What could have gone wrong and didn't? What could we have hedged against? But you really have to think about this individually. It's based on the threat what the duration of the threat is, what the the type of threat is, where you're going, and how long you plan to stay there when you get there. And uh, with those things in mind, you can make something that's more customized to you as an individual. Let's take another question. 
How you doing, Jack? My name's Jonathan from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm a pretty long-time listener. I had a question that maybe you might be able to do a show or maybe just answer my question on. I am a relatively newly married guy, putzing around, kind of waiting for a nice foreclosure. I really want to get something with a yard that I could do a garden in and such like that. But to do so, I need land. To get land, I have to move out of the city. For those of us who have always lived in uh, in a place where there is city water and sewer, uh, what do we look out for? What do we expect every year? And what danger signs are there for moving into a house outside a city that has well and septic? So, anyway, look forward to hopefully maybe getting an answer or having a show on this. Thank you very much. Bye. Good question, and uh, believe it or not, I have uh, the same issue with my bug-out location in Arkansas. I have a septic system in a well, and uh, my house in Pennsylvania, while in the, you know kind of a suburb in a really nice area, um, I had a, a, a well, and I had a uh, septic system. And there's a couple things I learned from that experience, so let me see if I can share them with you. Number one, first thing I would do if you buy a place with a well, I would hire a well guy, a guy that knows wells and knows well pumps and knows well systems, to come out and look at the electronic portion of your well. And I would say, tell me the parts on this thing that are most likely to break down, where they're at, and what you do to replace them, and how I know when they go bad. Pay the guy for his time. Give him 100 bucks. It's well spent. Buy all those commonly breakable parts and get that education. Because, like me, you could end up on the day after Christmas when everything is closed with lightning having struck your well, and uh, it's not that the part was the part was a hundred and twenty dollar part. Uh, it was a part I could probably have figured out and replaced myself, um, but I couldn't get one for three days. So my wife and I ended up microwaving water to warm it up and pouring it on each other out of gallon jugs to take showers for the next three days. And we had rain catchment. We had all these different things that we got to you know kind of run a survival drill. And if you go back and listen uh, to a couple shows right about the beginning of the year after that experience, uh, you'll hear the whole story. So. That's one thing I can definitely advise you to do. Two, if you already have a place with an existing septic tank, you're not going to have to put it, you're not building or bringing a house in or what have you. Uh, that's going to be part of the home inspection. Make damn sure it's done right. Make damn sure that it's completely inspected. The tank, the leach field, everything. Uh, that's very important. If you're going to build and somebody says, well, the average price of a septic tank in this area is XYZ to be installed, you'll get quotes from people first based on the land how much rock there is what has to be done what has to be moved what has to cut down there is no average price now if you're buying a square lot with no trees on it in a dirt field then maybe but if there's any kind of uh, aberration there that can be very uh, a very variable thing overall though i actually prefer both of them uh to living on grid if I have to worry about city sewer, city water, if something goes wrong with that, I have a problem. Now, sure, if it goes wrong for me, I have a problem, but there's so many ways that I can compensate for that and don't really have to worry as much, per se, as uh, if I were in a situation where I'm waiting on the city to fix it. I mean, the other side of that is... Odds are that if my system has a problem, it's not going to be at the exact time that the city has a problem and everything's gone to hell. So as an individual, I am in control of my repair time. I can call somebody up and say, come do it now. I have the money, I'll pay you. I don't have to wait to be prioritized. Whereas if the city grid goes down, odds are my system's up and running, I don't have to worry about it. 
So I find it preferable. Those are a few cautions that I would give you. And do not plant trees over your leach field. Be careful about what you build near your leach field. Uh, the leach field is the most expensive part of your septic system. On the well, if they tell you you only need to go X feet deep, ask how much it is to go deeper. And ask if there's an advantage. Sometimes the way water tables work, going deeper is not an advantage. But if there is an advantage going deeper, spending an extra 100 bucks when you're having a well put in is often a really, really good idea. To give you an idea of how deep, deep can be, my well in Arkansas is 644 feet deep. Now I'm sitting on a mountaintop at about 1,000 feet. So it's still 400 feet uh, above sea level there. But that's pretty much the le- below the level of the town below me. Uh, so... Deep wells are worth the investment. Best advice I can give you, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, my name is Ann. I live in Cedar Hill, Texas. I am new to the Survival Podcast. I just got finished listening to your July 30th, 2008, Nine Methods of Food Storage. And I'm wondering if anybody has had any um, experience with using the five-gallon food tub that they can get from the grocery store, just five-gallon food tubs. Uh, for extended food storage, uh, and also wondered your your opinions and anybody else's opinions on long-term storage of cornmeal or flour. Um, again, my name is Ann. Uh, any help is appreciated. I tried to make a comment on the website, and I couldn't get it to work. It's saying that I didn't enter a verifiable code. So that's one problem you might want to address. Thank you. By five-gallon tub, I'm assuming that you mean I go to Walmart, I go to the like Tupperware container section, and I see these great big blue, purple, orange, red, yellow, rubber-made tubs. And if you're asking about those for long-term food storage, and to me long-term is greater than a year, uh, my advice is no, don't use them for that. I find them to be exceptional for what I consider short-term storage, which is anything up to a year, with items that would store in your pantry, and you're using the bins more of a way of organizing them. There's a couple cautions that I have. If you have any problem with rodents, I want you to know that a rodent will chew a hole through one of them. Uh, specifically, if you're putting them out in a shed, squirrels will go into them, mice will try to go in, rats will definitely cut a hole in them. So they have that limitation. So as long as they're in a place where you don't think rodents are going to be a problem, you keep an eye on them to them, you run an inventory with them. For instance, I use them on a shelf system in my garage, and I keep my, my pantry items that overfill the pantry in them. I keep them labeled so I know that you know there's mixes in here, and there's this in there, and there's that in the other. Now, flour, uh, the second part of the question. Flour definitely can be stored long term. You have to do it uh, with the right type of, you know, using like five gallon buckets, mylar bags, uh, O2 absorbers, uh, gamma seal lids. That's the way to go if you want to store flour long term. Flour, though, can easily store a year if kept clean, dry, and relatively free of oxygen. And I think that's really a limitation that I would place on my flour. Flour is so cheap if you buy it already made and ready to go. Whether it's whole wheat or white, doesn't matter. It's very inexpensive. So I would look at storing, like, 
no more flour than you're going to use over a one-year period at maximum and using it and rotating it often because it's so cheap to buy that way. If you want to do long-term storage with wheat, which is what you're storing when you store flour is wheat, then it really makes a lot of sense to maybe get a grinder mill and start storing whole wheat. It has a much longer storage uh, capacity, even if not completely properly stored. You can basically take good, solid, quality, hard red wheat, put it in a a bucket, throw a gamma seal lid on it, no mylar, no O2 observers, I'm not suggesting it's the best way to go, but you could do it. Five years later, unless something has breached the bucket, you can eat it. It hasn't gone anywhere. As long as there wasn't something infecting it when you put it in there, as long as uh, it wasn't, again, breached by rodents or something like that, it's going to last. You do that with flour, it's going to be rancid and suck. So for long-term storage, you need to think with a little bit higher quality of a container. Um, metallic is even better. Five-gallon buckets with gamma steel lids are great. Uh, they're difficult for a rodent to get through. One caution on, on buckets. I don't think anybody would store their food where it's hit by the sunlight, but those five-gallon buckets that are like just tough as nails, put them in the sun for a year, and uh, they become brittle, and they crack like eggshells. So that's just something to know about storing your buckets, not really storing food. But better quality uh, equipment for long-term storage if you're talking greater than a year. Uh, And uh, if you're talking greater than a year, the flour, you can do it, but I would prefer that you looked at whole grains. Uh, The same with cornmeal. Whole grain corn, hard corn, grind your own cornmeal. Start learning to do that today, whether you're going to use it for long-term storage or not. Start bringing things like that into your kitchen. Use small quantities. Go get a gallon of corn to grind up, a gallon of wheat. Play with it. Learn to cook with it. Uh, You're going to be healthier and happier, and you're going to be more connected to what you're producing anyway. And if we ever got into a situation where you have to grow your own barter for your own, the real civil collapse, you're going to have the skill set at that time to be able to utilize what's available. Great question. Let's go and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is John in Salt Lake. Got a quick question for you. I just finished uh, reading the book One Second After by William uh, Forschen. That's about uh, it's fictional based on a possible EMP attack on America, kind of like the lights out. Now, that's a pretty interesting read. I'd recommend it. What I wanted to ask you is um, you mentioned in one of your previous shows that it's possible to harden electronics against EMP. I wondered if that would be possible and in your opinion, how likely would an EMP attack be or um, any kind of similar um, phenomenon? Thanks for your show, and thanks for the question. Bye. Well, there's definitely things you can do to harden electronics. It, it mostly involves, uh, you can create a Faraday cage, and there's plenty of plans online. If you just Google Faraday cage, it's spelled just like it sounds, you'll find plans to, to do them. Um, another thing you can do, though, is just getting a good quality metal shed and grounding it to the ground and anything inside that shed should be reasonably protected from all but the most severe EMPs, a direct uh, kind of EMP attack. So those are some basic things. I should probably do a whole show on EMP hardening. At this point, we're deep into the show. I can't do uh, a a long answer here uh, because people are going to get bored and be ready for the show to be over. Um, But those are some basic things you can do. Uh, Something as simple as keeping some electronics in the the drawer of a metal desk is some level of protection. Um, it's also the case that a lot of electronics are going to be more severely damaged uh, by EMP pulse if they're operational when the pulse hits than if they're off. So having some portion of electronics that you rely on 
off unless you are actively using them and having them in some type of metal, again, either a Faraday cage or a, a metal building will help a lot. Another thing you can do with your vehicles is you can ground your vehicles if you want to go to that level. I don't think it's necessary. This is not one of my biggest concerns. It's the second part of your question. I'll answer in a second. But grounding your vehicle by actually tying it into a ground rod and the ground will help. You can do things as basic as if you ever see a pickup truck driving around with a chain hanging and kind of dragging on the ground, that actually will ground the vehicle while it's in motion, while it's operating. It may not protect it from all EMP, but especially from the peripheral edges, uh, it'll offer some level of protection by allowing the surge to go into the ground rather than be absorbed by the electronics of the vehicle. So those are some things you can do. Now, how likely is it? I don't think it's very likely. I really don't. I think that most of the nations that are capable of doing it to us, that actually have the type of nuclear weapons with the level of uh, power necessary to generate such an EMP, um, are not likely to do it because they need us right now. Our economic collapse right now would destroy the economy of most of the rest of the world. That's where we're at today. My fear is that in five years, they will have divested themselves from us enough to cause our economic collapse uh, or some portion thereof, and they won't need us anymore. And then we're in a lot more of an exposed state. So I see this bigger as a future threat. I also, You mentioned two books. You mentioned One Second After and Lights Out. The single detonation theory is weak to me. It's thin. And it's why David Crawford used ten warheads in his scenario in his book of fiction that it was much more likely that that type of an array of nuclear blasts simultaneously could really shut down the grid than just one weapon. One weapon would have a hard time creating the level of disaster described in one second after. Not that it's impossible, but it is improbable. Um, So I don't see it that big of a threat that way. One thing that's always concerned me, because this is another one of those things to me, it's just when is this going to happen. Um, One day... The sun is going to throw out a great big giant angry storm and it's going to send a uh, what amounts to a natural EMP. And, and it's not what they call it, but it's, it's the same real effect, and it's going to send it right at us. And uh, depending on which side of the Earth is facing and how big it is, that could be a catastrophe. Now, this is like an asteroid impact. Sooner or later, one of them is going to hit us, but I don't walk around worrying about it every day. I don't think you should either. But having some level of electronics protected uh, by metal casing, being off, being in a grounded facility or grounded Faraday cage makes a lot of sense to me. And again, just one of those cheap five, $600 metal sheds grounded to the ground with a good long copper grounding rod pounded into the ground and a grounding strap. A lot of the stuff in there should be relatively protected. Now, I know I'm going to get like the physicist out there emailing me saying, well, if the blast is here and it's this much, that's not enough protection and what have you. But again, what we're looking at is what can we do with reasonable assets that make sense that doesn't actually impinge upon our daily living. In other words, would it really harm you to have an additional storage shed made out of steel on your property for a minimal investment, and the only thing you've done differently than everybody else that owns those sheds is ground it. You probably could use the storage space. It probably makes a lot of sense. It's not that. It's not a big part of money. It's not step one in a survival preparedness plan, but it certainly has its place along the way, and it helps you live a better life today because it gives you additional storage space. That's how to think in all these things, and that's what I want to wrap up with today, folks. It's not so much, again, the individual disaster. I love these questions. Keep them coming. Don't take it wrong when I say this, but really what it is is as you examine these individual disasters, you realize that the biggest thing that we need to do is prepare to be without 
out systems of support. Regardless of the cause of the breakdown of that support system, be prepared for it not to be there and look at ways that we can work on figuring out how to, to deal without that thing being there. And if we do that, we're going to go a long way toward living that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent